When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The difference between you being a delusional fool and a visionary, inspiring person is the end of the story. Depends on how the story ends. Because had I not made it, then again, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. But the fact that I did make it makes this into a conversation. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. Thanks for making us one of the top leadership podcasts in the world. And uh, again, invite you share these human-centered leadership practices with all the leaders, managers in your life and invite them to listen to. That's what's got us here and it'll keep us going. Uh, excited to introduce our guest to you today. We are welcoming Dre Baldwin to the show. You might know him by his uh, moniker Dre all day. Now we only get to listen to Dre for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes today. But uh, if you want to listen to Dre all day, literally he's got his own podcast uh, called work on your game. It is a daily podcast with over 5 million listeners. Uh, Dre is the CEO and founder of work on your game Inc. He's a frequent TEDx speaker and author whose content's been viewed over hundred million times. So you might know what he's talking about. Dre had a nine year professional basketball career played in eight different countries and he's got a framework called the Roadmap in Reverse for a professional mindset, strategy, systems, and execution, including systematizing success, an athlete's mindset for non-athletes, mental toughness, resilience, and more. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Dre Baldwin, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Well, David, I am excited to be here. Thank you for that glowing introduction. Hopefully I can live up to it. Well, I think it's all true. So uh, that makes it easier to, <laughs> easier to put it out there. All right, Dre. So uh, we're going to talk leadership. We're going to talk uh, your career. We're going to talk uh, mental discipline, toughness, all the roadmap for success, all those things. But before we do any of that, uh, I want to invite you to take us back in your life, whatever your earliest memory of yourself as a leader might be. Hmm. How far back would you take? What memory would you take us? Hmm. That's a good question. Nobody ever asked that one. That's a good one. So um, in elementary school, I used to do for a couple of years, two years, I did, um, I guess it was called the drama club where you would act and we would put on plays. So I did two years of the, the drama club and I took, uh, I went after the big roles. I would always try to go after the big roles. So I remember I did, uh, we did a play in the second grade. I did one called the salt and the sea. And I played uh, this guy named Giles. I don't know if anybody ever heard of that. I'd never heard of it since then. And then in third grade, I did Julius Caesar. Now that one, everybody knows. I played Brutus on Julius Caesar. Et so I remember brute. the speech. Okay. Yes. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. I remember the speech. I memorized my, all my lines. So I've always been good at memorizing lines. So that was probably the first time that I can think of taking a leadership role. Even so, though I wasn't Caesar, I was Brutus, but he had and Caesar died anyway. So, you know, Brutus had more lines. <laughs> uh, he's like, I'm no fool. I'm taking the role with more lines. Yeah. Uh, I love Thank it. You. I love it. So earliest memory is getting involved in uh, in theater and acting and going after those mm. big roles. Yeah. And getting after it. Love it. Well, and that'll factor into some of uh, what we're talking about, too, in, in looking through your book and, and some of the mindset pieces that you help leaders with. So um, part of your career, just a little bit more to help our, our audience get to know you is uh, so you were not on a basketball scholarship in college. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. You were a walk on division three college player. Yeah. And then you went on to a professional career. All right. So help, walk us through that a little bit. What did that look like? How'd that happen? Okay, so I didn't start playing basketball until I was about 14. I was always playing sports, but I didn't really get just playing basketball exclusively until about 14 was the start of high school. So I wasn't good naturally. And I didn't really become I didn't really kind of feel like I was a good player till about the summer after graduating from high school. So uh, naturally in high school, I wasn't very good. I didn't do anything. I only played one year on the team. And that one year I sat the bench. I averaged uh, two points a game. 
for those of you who know basketball, you know, two points is not a lot. You know, I always tell people, David, you know, if you're playing hockey or soccer, you score two points a game, you're in the Hall of Fame. But in <laughs> basketball, you score two points a game, you're a bum, right? So I didn't, nobody was saying after high school, this guy's going to go anywhere. But I was going to go to college either way, just off of, you know, academics. Just personally, I wanted to go to college. It was my excuse to kind of get out of my parents' home, get out of Philadelphia, maybe get away. So I went to school and I walked on, which is, for those who don't know sports, that means nobody invited you. You just show up and you kind of just try to play your way onto the team as a nobody who was uninvited. And that's basically what I did. So I played my way onto the team and no played in college. I mean, I was a starter. I was on the team. I had my highlights, but I'm playing at the division three level. So it's not like anybody cares because division three sports, division three colleges do not produce professional athletes. Most players playing D three, David, they don't even, they're not ambitious about playing sports. That's the reason that they're at the D three in the first place, right? They're there because they, they play sports because they can, I mean, I'm good enough to be on the team here, but I'm not trying to go to the the football players aren't thinking NFL, the basketball players aren't thinking NBA and every other sport. They're not thinking the pro level because if they were really thinking the pro level, they probably would be at a division one or maybe division two. So when I got out of college, nobody was knocking on my door, you no know, recruiting me to come play pro. I had the inclination myself. I wanted to play pro. I felt like I was still getting better because I had started at 14. So I was what they would call a late bloomer. I still felt like I was getting a lot better as a player. I still felt like I had room for growth, whereas a lot of the players who I grew up playing with, they've been playing since they were five, you no know, six, seven years old. So mm -hmm. they had pretty much become who they would be by the time they're 21. I was not who I was going to be yet. I felt like I was still improving and I felt like I could play at the pro level. I felt like I could play with those guys. So my first year out of school, it's not like this is some Cinderella story. I did not get a contract my first year out of college. It's because, again, nobody was offering me one. So my first job out of college was working as an assistant manager at Foot Locker. Now, had I stayed there, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, right? So I, I worked at Foot Locker. Then uh, I worked there for six months. Then I worked at a gym called Bally Total Fitness, selling gym memberships. Uh, they're now out of business, not because of me. I sold a lot of memberships <laughs> with Bally. And then in, uh, so giving everybody a time frame here, this is the summer of, I got out of college in 2004. So this a whole year goes by those two jobs. In the summer of 2005, I saved up some money to go to this event called an exposure camp. David, you familiar with what those are? Ever heard of them? I've heard of them. Mm-hmm. OK, so they're pretty ubiquitous these days. But back 20 years ago, these were they are a relatively new thing. So an exposure camp is basically like a casting call for athletes where instead of or kind of like a job fair. So everybody knows a job fair is you bring your resume, you put on a suit, you shake hands, talk about what you can do. And hopefully you get a job interview with somebody. A exposure camp is a similar idea, except that you don't just talk about what you can do. You bring your sneakers and you play. So imagine going to a basketball gym. There's 200 players in there. We all think we're good enough to play pro. And the audience is not just random fans. These are owners, scouts, agents, managers, and uh, coaches from basketball teams around the world because they go to these events. These are destination events for them because they're looking for the talent. So they're looking for the talent. We're the talent. We're trying to show ourselves as worthy of being chosen. So we all paid money to come to this event. The event was $250. And I remember paying $250 in cash at the door because I didn't have a bank account or a credit card at the time. And I negotiated with the people who ran the event. Hey, can I pay in cash at the door? They said, yeah, mm. they would take anybody's money. That's a different story. But, <laughs> so I went, I went to the event, paid $250 in cash. It was in Orlando, Florida. Now at the time I'm from Philadelphia. So we had driven from Philly to Orlando. We rented a car. Got the car, got in the car Friday afternoon, drove straight to Orlando. We hopped out of the car at 9 a.m. Saturday morning, which happened to be the start time of the camp. And we just started playing hot right out of the car. Now, I could get away with that at age 23. Couldn't do it now, but I could do it at age 23. So uh, went there, played. The camp was only two days long. So you got two days and we played two games each day. And you're just trying to show and prove. You're trying to impress somebody. And I played pretty well with this event. And I got a good scouting report. So what they do is basically do a write-up of you, what you're about, put it on their website. And this was very important for me because now I had third-party validation, someone other than myself saying that Dre is a good player. He's good enough to play pro. And I got the footage from that event. And when I got back home, now, mind you, Monday morning, you can't Saturday, Sunday. Monday morning, I had to be back at work at Valley Total Fitness. So I'm back at work and I was a salesperson. So we had these phone rooms with all these phones. So I was kind of cheating on the job. I was using the phone, the, my work time, and I'm going on Google and I'm looking up basketball agents because my deductive reasoning here is I'm trying to play overseas basketball. I'd barely been out of the state of Pennsylvania that much by that point. I don't know anybody overseas. So how am I going to play overseas? Mm -hmm. So I figured, let me get with an agent. 
So agents in the sports world work the same way that a literary agent works or an acting agent. They're the middleman between the talent and the opportunities, the jobs. So I figured, let me get with an agent. They'll know somebody overseas. They can vouch for me. They can be my advocate. They can help me get a job. And when I get a job, I get paid. They get paid. So they have an incentive to help me out. So I went on Google and I just looked up basketball agent. Now, mind you, this is 2005. This sounds like common sense now, right? But 2005, the internet existed, but it wasn't anything like what it is now. So, but there were no agents out there. Any agent that I found who had a phone number, I called them. I'm literally cold calling basketball agents. Hey, here's who I am. Here's what I have. And at this point, I have some collateral. I have that scouting report and I got my footage. So because a year earlier, I could have did the same thing. You might be thinking, but I didn't have anything to show. I just had my words and nobody believes that. Now I have something to show them. So I called about 60 basketball agents out of that 60, wow. 20 of them said, all right, let me see what you have. The 20 people said, let me see what you got. So I sent them my scouting report, which is a link on the website. And then I had to send them my footage. Now, mind you, this is 2005. All right, well, now, we just, don't have... Just pause there real quick. So you called yeah. 60, 20 of them said, yeah, let me see what you got. That means 40 of them either didn't take your call or said, no, thanks. Exactly. Most of them just ignored me. Yeah, they yep. didn't respond. Yeah. All right. So now 20 of them said, let me see what you got. Now, mind you, we don't have links. There's no link to send. This is a VHS tape that I had. I know you remember VHS, David. Okay. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. So any any millennials or Gen Zers watching this or listening to this, ask your parents or Google it and you can find out what a VHS tape is. So it was basically YouTube, but a physical device. All right. That's what it was. <laughs> so I had to actually make copies of my VHS tape. I had a double decker VCR at home. And I'm making copies of my own VHS tape. I went to this drugstore called Eckert. I don't know if they're still in business, but I bought a blank, like a 10 pack of blank VHS tapes. And I would make copies of my tape. And then I would mail those in bubble mailers to every agent who has to see my footage. So I sent that out to 20 agents. One agent followed up with me or responded to my follow up and said, all right, I'll represent you. And that agent helped me get my first contract. That was in uh, the summer. This is August 2005. And mm. Countess Lithuania. So that's how I got my first job playing overseas. Mm. Wow. There is so much about that story that to, to tease out and draw in. And I, I know it goes to a lot of your methodology and, and system and, and, uh, and so on. And, and what is in there for all the leaders listening to the show today, you know, what strikes me, well, first off, let's just talk technology 17 years ago, not that long ago. And, you know, VHS tapes around to mail all that. That's, that's not that long. I know for a 17 year old, it's their whole life. Right. Our son's, son's 17. So he was born mm. when you were mailing VHS tapes. There right. you go. It's not that yeah. long ago, but okay. Technology aside, how many mm. opportunities you had to say, ah, this isn't worth it uh, mm. you know, to give up to, to say, you know, and I, I think it's unusual that someone has that level of belief in their own ability and doesn't take all the negativity as a reason to stop. Uh, and so, you know, it's not that, and I don't know, you didn't say anybody was like saying, Dre, you can't do this. You're dumb. Nobody, you didn't say that or not. I don't know. Maybe there were, but, mm -hmm. but for a year you had to believe it. Then you had to pay two hundred fifty dollars. When you're working, I know when you're working, you know ballets or footlocker, whatever. That's not that's a ton of money. Like, oh yeah, I had to I had to budget for that. That's yeah. a lot of cash. <laughs> I had to plan so for you're, that. <laughs> you're putting down all this yeah. cash, driving last ditch. I mean, it's like a movie, right? Going right. doing the doing the the exposure camp, and then you know sixty agents, twenty of mm -hmm. them, twenty of them allow you the privilege of packing up all those tapes and sending it to them, which costs more money, right? right. And one, one out of the 60 says, I got you. Let's try this. Mm -hmm. What kept you going? Man, it's a great question. First of all, I've always been, I've always had the discipline instilled in me. I had to give my parents credit for that. They're not athletes. Neither of them is even over six feet tall. I'm six, four, but, um, it was just the, just what we call home training. You no, know, just the discipline, go to school, do your chores, you no, know, get good grades, you no, know, all of those things. And when I started playing sports, I didn't really have anybody to teach me, David. So I just took the same stuff that I had been taught at home, which is discipline, doing the work every day. And I said, all right, well, let me apply this to sports. I mean, it's the only thing that I know that might work. I didn't, nobody was telling me what to do. Again, it's not like I can go on the internet and look up a basketball player in 1996. There wasn't, that, that didn't exist. So I just took that and applied it into sports. 
combined with the fact that I've always been a competitive person, that's just part of my personal wiring. So my competition at that time was I was just competing against the situation. So to answer, to respond to something that you mentioned there, there was no any, there was no one person saying this is dumb, don't do it, forget about it. But I'm the type of person who I could kind of just to get myself going, I could kind of craft those stories in my mind that the people are saying, all right, this is this is a waste of time. He's going nowhere. This is what's this guy going to do? All right. Basketball is pretty much done for him because all the young men in my neighborhood, by the time you get to about age 16, if you're not kind of getting traction in a sport like basketball, they pretty much stop trying. So and they would look at me like, all right, you're always out here practicing. What are you doing? You're not you're not doing anything. You're not going anywhere. What are you doing? So I kind of but it wasn't any any one person. It was just me looking at the situation and just saying, I'm going to prove myself right against the situation. And I've always kind of had that uh, mentality and I just kept at it. So that one year was uh, that was the pivotal year. So you are 100 percent correct in seeing that that year, 2004, going into 2005, was the year where most people would probably say to themselves, okay, let me be realistic, quote unquote, about this situation. And okay, I did what I did in basketball, played in college, I can at least take solace in that, but now it's time to move on. But I just refused to give up on it. Let me at least give it a shot. I knew if I got my opportunity in front of the right audience, if I get outplayed in front of that audience and those players are better than me, then I can say, okay, I went as far as I could take it. But if I never got the opportunity, I never took the shot, then I can't say that I gave everything I had to it or I gave my I gave it a shot and I wasn't good enough, but I got to get out there. So when I saw that exposure camp and what you said is 100 percent spot on, David, I saw that exposure camp and we're recording this in January. All right. The exposure camp was in June. Right. So I'm planning. I like all right, I got to have two hundred fifty dollars in June. <laughs> it's January. <laughs> so I had to save that money up. And then is also the travel. We got to get down there. You need a hotel. You got to eat. And I had to figure out how do I negotiate getting, I had to leave Friday, get off Saturday. And I had to get three straight days off. You're working pretty much a retail job. Nobody gets three straight days off working retail. So all of these things had to be factored into the gig. And I had to go down there and play basketball and do good. Because if I didn't play well in those two days, all of that would be for naught. And we wouldn't be telling the story right now. So all of that factored into it. But that's the that was just the big picture idea that I had from the very beginning. That work and planning, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I will give you two more things just because, I mean, we all know there has to be some kind of internal drive more than just the logical stuff. So everything I just told you was the logical side. The internal side was in college, uh, one of the, I got recruited to play at a different at a different Division three college was actually kind of a step up based on the way the schools were at the time as a sophomore. So the coach who recruited me to Penn State Altoona, which is where I graduated from, he got fired, got replaced by a different coach. And that new coach ended up kicking me out of the program because he and I just kind of butted heads. And often because when new coaches come in on a college level, anyone who knows college sports knows that sometimes they just clean house. Same way that when a new CEO comes into a company, some people lose their jobs, not because you can't do the job, but because they just want to have their own people. So I ended up being a casualty of that changeover. And I wanted to prove for posterity's sake that this guy made a mistake. I didn't really have I didn't have a personal beef with him. It was business. But. I made it I, in my mind. I made it into a personal thing. Like I'm going to prove my point because these guys who are still on the team, I'm better than them, but they're on the team and I'm not. So I can't say I'm better than them. And they're on the team and I'm sitting in the bleachers. So that was one side of it. And the other side of it is when I got out of college, my parents were like, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, I want to play pro basketball. Right. And they kind of thought that was crazy because look at my background. Everything I told you, they saw it, even though they're not athletes, they are reasonable, no logical yeah. people. Right. They can just put two <laughs> and two together and say, well, you haven't, no, they didn't say it in so many words, but like you don't have a plan. You don't have any offers. You don't have any job prospects, but you're talking about you're going to do this job professionally. It doesn't add up. It didn't add up. They were completely right. They were 100 percent reasonable and accurate. And at the same time, the, again, if you're going to do something that's abnormal, you got to have an abnormal state of mind. So I always understood. Yes, what they're saying is 100 percent right, that this is an unreasonable, illogical idea that I'm going to become a pro basketball player. But that's exactly why. You know, I'm I'm wired how I'm wired because I'm not going to just do the reasonable, logical things. If I do that, then where am I going to end up? I'm going to be like everybody else. I didn't want that. I knew I wanted to be different in some way. And basketball just happened to be the vehicle I used to do it. The other thing that, that strikes me about that is it's not just that you wanted to be different mm -hmm. or wanted to do that thing or, or believed it when no one else did. You saw evidence of it in your own skill set. You you weren't 
just full of an empty dream. You were doing the work, you were putting in the time, you were comparing your skills, going, what do I need to do? Um, and looking at your own abilities and thinking you had a shot. It wasn't just because sometimes people will have like this unrealistic self-image, you know, that you know, like I want to, you know, I want to press 300 pounds and, you know, their, their arms are never going to support that given where they are now, but mm. you were doing the work and you could see. So it was like it based in some reality for you, even if no one else could see it. Is that, am I understand that right? Yes, definitely. And I mean, especially in the sports world, a lot of people have these, I guess what we can call delusions of grandeur, or what they can do as athletes. And you know, the thing that I tell people, David, is you can't know from the beginning. It's kind of like Steve Jobs said in that famous uh, commencement speech. You can only you know put it together. You only put the puzzle together looking backwards. I forget exactly how he said it, but mm -hmm. you have to put it together looking backwards. And what I tell people is uh, the difference between you being a delusional fool and a visionary uh, inspiring person is the end of the story. Depends on how the story ends, because had I not made it, then again, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. But the fact that I did make it makes it makes this into a conversation. So it depends on how it ends. It's interesting. I, I want to tease out a third possibility is uh, had you gone, done your best and and really been proud of your effort mm. and didn't get chosen, you still would have known and been proud of your effort and had done the work. And I think that's still a different thing than the person who's just delusional <laughs> And, you know, just ungrounded and not putting in the work because so much of what you're talking about right. in in uh, work on your game and work is there in the title. It's the, mm -hmm. you know, a driving part of of what you're doing and what you're talking about there. So cool story. One of the things that's occurring to me for leaders, Trey, is there's a message there that if you see yourself in a particular way, role, what have you. And maybe you didn't ever before, but now you are, and you're willing to do the work, there's a chance and a way to go after it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you see yourself, I I mean, the saying is no one can act consistently in a way that is incongruent with the way they see themselves. Right. And the thing is, like you said, work on your game. I, I tell people in my audience all the time, the fact that I put the word work in the title I'm already excluding the people who aren't willing to do the work, right? So I'm already select self-selecting the audience by even putting the word work in the title. And I talk to people all the time who say they want to do certain things. And I ask them, okay, well, what actions have you taken to commit yourself to actually getting there? People hesitate when it comes time to make that commitment. That's the part that people don't make that commitment. And I think one of the benefits of me uh, coming into the game when I did was that there wasn't so many people to look around at. Right? It wasn't so much to be distracted by. The internet existed, but it was nothing like what we have now where you yeah. can 24-7 watch everybody else's lives. It yeah. was, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't have 30 options. I had one option. I'm going to go to this exposure camp because this much money. I know how I'm going to get there. And I have no, there was no plan B. If I was going to make it pro, it had to work that way. There was no other way to make it work, at least from what I knew, my limited knowledge at the time. And just enough internet to search for basketball agents and find 60 possibilities. <laughs> exactly. And Great. find their phone numbers. Back and get those they, phone numbers. Yeah, right. So it's 60 that you could find a phone number. <laughs> Who knows how many more you came across? You couldn't. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So yeah, book, we've mentioned it several times called Work on Your Game. And there's several different uh, elements. I mean, it's a, more than we can unpack the whole book in the time we have. But I definitely want to touch on some of these elements. So you talk about a roadmap in reverse. And that's getting a little bit at, you know, some of the statement you were just making about the, the end proves it out. But so right. let's paint the 50,000 foot view, big picture for roadmap in reverse and start drawing out some of these elements. Sure. So actually one of my, one of my clients actually said that, and that's where I, I stole the phrase from when he said it, but I, I really liked it because that's exactly what I help people do when it comes to strategizing, which is figuring out where you want to end up. And then we just had to backtrack of what needs to be true in order for that outcome to occur. What needs to be true for that? And we just keep asking the question until we work ourselves backwards. Now, all we have to do is execute on these steps. All right? And that's the hard part. Uh, and actually, strategizing is the hard part, too, because a lot of times what I've found, and David, I'm sure you have enough experience to notice that a lot of times people want help with a certain goal that they want to achieve, but they've been asking themselves so many of the wrong questions. And that's the reason why they need help. And what people think they need help with is information, but they don't need help with information because Google has more information than any human being has in their head. What we need help with is asking the right question because see, 
even though you have access to Google, which will give you all the answers. What if you don't know the right question? So you can't ask Google the question. It's going to give you the information that you need because you don't know what to ask it. And let's That's, tease that. Let's tease that out a little bit. So when you talk about okay. uh, a lot of a lot of people asking the wrong question versus the right question, mm-hmm. what are the wrong kind of questions, and what are more effective questions? That's a great question. So one of the wrong kind of questions is. I talk to people often with the kind of stuff that I talk about. People say things like, well, Dre, I need to be, I'm not consistent. So I need to be more motivated. I need to be more focused. I got to be more disciplined. I got to work harder. And what I tell them is a challenge. If your challenge is discipline, your challenge is not, you need to be more disciplined. Your challenge is you have no structure. That's the reason why you're not being disciplined. Discipline is not the starting point is the byproduct. If you have the right structure in place, the discipline happens as a result of the structure. So when you put the structure in place, all you had to do is follow your structure, follow the system. And because you're following the system, you are going, the discipline is going to come out of you. The discipline is going to be the end game. So the challenge for a lot of people is they think that they need to do A, B, C in order to achieve their outcome. And I ask people this all the time. Well, if that's all you needed to do, why aren't you doing it? And they say, well, I'm just not doing it. Well, actually, you are doing it. It's just that that's the wrong question. So it doesn't matter if you do it. You're still not going to get the outcome. You have to be able to ask yourself the right questions. This is the value of this is why the consulting industry exists. When we talk about coaches, trainers, any kind of expert who offers insight, that's the reason that this industry exists, because we help people ask the questions that they haven't even been thinking about asking. So that when they ask the right questions, now they have a different idea of what actions to take. And that's when they start getting different outcomes. Because if we just went off of our own best ideas of what to do, then again, why would we need any of this stuff? It it wouldn't even make sense. So how do we start figuring that out? So I I love this principle. I'm a a huge believer in the, um, what's the outcome you're trying to achieve? Well, what needs to be true for that? What needs to be true for that? And you keep working back until you go, okay, what needs to be true for that is I need to find these three things then go from there right um when you don't know what you don't know like let's take the example of discipline right there's let's mm-hmm. one of the principles that, that we could draw out of that is that uh the the two greatest determinations of human behavior are the people around us and our environment so what are we pre-programming ourselves to do with the people around us and the way that our environment is constructed which as you said that's the structure that then we operate within that and we start disciplines a byproduct of that. What if you don't know that? What if I am looking at the world going, gosh, I need more discipline, I need more organization. And I'm, or I'm a leader who's trying to get my team uh, going a particular direction, or I'm trying to achieve some results. Or I'm trying to get them working better together or help with a strategy for organization, whatever it might be. And mm-hmm. I'm struggling and I know that I want to do better or achieve a different result, Mm. but I'm struggling with that. And part of that is because I don't know what I don't know. And there may be that missing piece. How can we start teasing that out? Well, the easy way, the shortcut way is to go to somebody who already does know it and ask them, let them help you out. I mean, that's the shortcut. And that goes right to what you just said is the environment and the people that you're around. And we all know the law of association. You become the average of the people you spend the most time with. It doesn't have to be five people. It could be 10. It could be one. It could be 30. It doesn't matter how many people it is. The shortcut to achieving more success faster is borrowing the brains of other people. And what I tell people, and I, I emphasize this a lot, especially these days, is that we're no longer in the permission economy where you had gatekeepers blocking your access from things. That's over. And we're not in the com- we're not in the competition economy where it doesn't have to be me against you. We're in the collaboration economy. Everything we do these days is collaboration. So right now you and I are collaborating, right? I'm uh, talking about my story for your audience and you're providing an audience of people that probably have never heard of me before. That's collaboration between you and I. When you get on social media, they're providing the platform and all the people you're providing the content. I tell people, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, how much content do they create? They don't create anything. All they do is offer the platform and we provide all the stuff. And then they monetize our time and that's how they make their money. That's a collaboration. All we're doing these days is collaborating. So there's so much opportunity in collaboration. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people out here who have this mentality of they still have the competition economy mentality of they're going to be the lone wolf. I'm just going to be so good and so strong by myself that I don't need anybody else's help. I'm not going to communicate or with anybody. I'm just going to try to beat everybody out on my own. And unfortunately, 
uh, that the educational system in America kind of ingrains this in us. Because when you take a test in school, if you look on another person's paper, you fail, right? But in real life, if you don't talk to your neighbor, you don't talk to the people around you, you don't communicate with everybody else in your industry to find out what's going on, that's how you fail, by not talking mm. to anybody else. So it's mm. almost the exact opposite of what we get taught in school is what we need to do in quote unquote real life to be successful. You need to collaborate, borrow the brains of other people, even if it costs you money, because when you use your money to borrow another person's brain, what you're doing is achieving your outcome faster. So you are essentially buying time. That's what you're doing when you invest your money into getting knowledge and insight from other people. Love that. There are so many different applications. I'm thinking where my brain goes first. One is uh, the truth of that in your own journey, uh, a mm. you know, team sport. So there's obvious comparison there, but, uh, mm. you had to, you know, it took the camp, it took the people, it took the agent, it took all those people to make that happen. Then I was, uh, uh, thinking about our son, uh, we mentioned 17 wants to be in entertainment, theater, comedy, what have you, the, the performing arts. Yeah. And he is his way of doing what you're talking about, borrowing other people's brains right now is doing what we're doing. He's listening to so many podcasts of yeah. people who have been there, like high level people. And, you know, we try, we try to like once a week or more ask one another. So what'd you learn this week? That kind of thing. What are you, where are we learning? He said, you know, what I've learned from these people is the value of taking work with somebody who has something to teach you regardless of the sure. pay, regardless of the thing, but what can I learn from this person and to be able to work alongside them for some, he said, I'm seeing that over and over again in these stories of successful people. 100%. And so, you know, you're talking about the money we have to invest. There's so much available right now, collaboratively that people are putting out, you're sharing your story, you're sharing your wisdom here. People mm -hmm. can listen to it for the trade-off of some time and they're probably exercising while they're doing it. 100%. And it's, it's, that's a great idea of uh, what your son is doing to be in the entertainment field. Like I was in basketball for professionally and known on the internet for 10 years. If a player had ever come to me and everybody, I live in Miami, I work out at, I worked out at a gym. All my videos are in the same gym. Everybody knows where that gym is. Like I, I still live close to it to this very day. Never once did I have a player reach out to me. And I had millions of people watch my content. Never once did I have a player reach out to me and say, Dre, look, I'll rebound for you every day in the gym. If I could just hang with you and just you know, talk to you, see how you work out and ask you some questions after mm. each workout, I would have said yes. Mm. Nobody ever offered it to me. Nobody ever offered that. If I was coming up today, that's what I would do. I would find somebody who was much better than me. Let's say I'm playing basketball. Much better than me. I would say, hey, look, I'll rebound for you every workout. You need somebody to grab because I know the game. I know what a basketball player needs. You shoot, you got to go get the ball. All right, somebody go get the ball for me. Let me just, I'll just watch you work out. I don't even have to ask you any questions. I just want to watch what you do. I just want to see what you're doing. I just want to get a feel for how you show up, how you work out, how you do what you do. And that'll be enough for me. I'm learning. I'm apprenticing with you. And you don't even have to pay me. If someone would have offered me that, I would have said yes. Nobody ever made the offer. And if I was coming up today, that's what I would have a player do. Or I, that's what I would do. I would find some player better than me and do exactly that. Just borrow their brains. And the information is out there. People are willing the more successful a person is, usually the more they want to talk about themselves, right? I mean, we like <laughs> telling people how good we are. So it's available, but people just are not creative in coming up with different ways to get things done. And I was telling my audience, um, not too long ago, I was talking about this, what to do when you feel like you don't have the money, right? Because that's a common objection we hear right? in our line of work. We are, I can help you. It's going to cost this much. So people, I don't have the money. That's people's most common reason that they don't do anything. I don't have the money. There are other ways to get what you want, even if you don't have the money. Often people think that's the only way or I don't have the money, so I can't have it. So I guess I'll do nothing. Well, let's think a little bit more creatively. What else does this person need that doesn't cost money? Because I guarantee you it's something. Do you have it? Can you provide it? Can you arrange it? Maybe you could be the middleman between what they need and what somebody else has. You can broker the deal and you can get things done. The thing is, people are just so uh, the Internet has made people lazy. I think the social media and internet has made people very lazy when it comes to creating opportunities because they see people like yourself with a podcast and myself making basketball videos on YouTube. And they think, OK, all I have to do is this and things are going to work out. And then when it doesn't happen that way, they quit or they don't do anything else or they just keep doing it, hoping that they get a different result. I mean, definition of insanity. So it's that creativity If people could just think a little bit more creatively and say, all right, what's another way that I can get to this goal besides the straight line? Because maybe I can't do it through the straight line, but there may be another way to get to this. Maybe there's a back door to get to it. I mean, the same thing I did in basketball. Most basketball players who most of your audience has heard of, what did they do? They went to college, played great, 
the agents are knocking down their door, they get drafted, they sign a contract, live happily ever after. Well, what if it doesn't happen that way? Is there another way into the game? There are other ways into the game, but most people never ask themselves the right question. They ask themselves one question, don't get the answer that they want, and then they they keep asking the same question, don't get the answer they want, and they pretty much end up giving up. So our practical takeaway here, who can you rebound for that Mm -hmm. knows something that you can imprint from, learn from, absorb, apprentice to? And so by rebounding, we're just meaning find a way to add value. How can you find a way to add value to them? Uh, love that principle. All right, let's get some more of these. Uh, one of the things you talk about in work on your game is cardio for the mind. And I love that phrase. You got a couple of these phrases. I just, they really resonate. So cardio for the mind. Let's talk about yeah. that. What are we talking about here? Cardio for the mind is mental conditioning. First chapter of the book. And I, I start the book with that because you got to be in game shape. I mean, metaphorically speaking here, you got to be in game shape so you can go out there and perform. And I'm a person who's a I'm a I'm a long run individual. So what I mean is when it comes to creating success, I'm not a sprinter. I'm a I'm a distance runner. So I prefer 10K and longer. Let's just put it like that. I'm 10K, six and a quarter you're, miles. You and me both. Yeah. So I like long races because the longer the race is, I already know the longer the race, the better chances I'm going to win. Right. The longer that it goes. And that was the way that I was looking at it in college because I ended up you know, off the team. That was my junior year. So I still had my whole senior year not on the team. And it was a year and a half after graduation before I signed my first contract. So we're talking two and a half years, but I had the the mental toughness to stick with it. And that conditioning is just getting yourself mentally prepared for where you're going to go. And this is something that I have anyone I work with, get that mental conditioning in place. What type of person do you need to be? What are the things that you want to achieve? What are the things that you want to do? What are the things you've already done in the past and conditioning your mind? Like the human brain is the most powerful tool known to man. Unfortunately, we don't uh, we don't use it to its fullest capability simply because, again, people are not aware of what it's capable of doing. And then a lack of structure. People don't know what to do with it. Even if you agree with me that it's powerful, what do you do with it? What do you do with this powerful thing? It's like you have a, a powerful vehicle, but you don't know how to drive it. Right. What All right. Let's get let's it? get practical. How do we how do we engage that mental conditioning? How do we engage in cardio of the mind? Great question. First of all, ask yourself, what are, what are your goals? Most people are pretty familiar with that concept. What are the things you want to achieve? Then it's, we all know you can't get something for nothing. What do you need to do? Or what are the actions that you're willing to take that are commensurate with outcomes that you want to achieve? So I was talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago. He made maybe 30 to 50 grand last year. I said, how much do you want to make next year? He said, 10 million. I said, okay, now you make 10 million, but what are you going to do that's going to take from the actions you took this year to next year that's going to multiply your outcomes from what you made to what you're trying to make? Uh, something's got to change and you can't you can't work 20 times harder. So what else is going to change here? What are you going to do differently? And uh, he didn't really have a good answer to that question, but that's what he said. His goals, he can have whatever goals he want. And the third question is who you need to be. This is the most important one. What type of person do you need to be? How do you need to change as an individual? Because we all know if you were already that person, you would already be doing the stuff. You would already have the outcomes. So what type of person do you need to be? And you really got to sit and think about this one, because this is a question most people never think about. Most everyone understands the concept of goals. What do you want? You ask somebody what they want, they'll throw anything out there, all kinds of stuff. You ask somebody, what do you need to do to achieve your outcomes? Even if someone's not doing it, they understand the concept. But you ask somebody what, who you need to be as a person. This is one that gets people stuck because they've never thought about that. What type of person do I need to be? And that's not actions. That's mindset. It's your stature, your posture, how you're carrying yourself, your aura, your energy. How does your energy need to be different from how it is now in order for you to take those actions that will lead to those outcomes? And it's not only asking the question, it's also answering it. And then it's reminding yourself of this on a daily basis. That's the conditioning part. That's the cardio for the mind. If we were to to make this practical, I'm thinking about uh, the other day, I was reading something uh, people were talking about nutrition, weight loss and all this kind of thing. And um, Mm -hmm. and one of the, the comments in there was, that people who succeed are doing what you're talking about is it's not what diet am I going to do or what workout plan am I going to adopt? It's how can I today be a person who is 50 pounds lighter or hundred pounds lighter? Like exactly. that's the way of being. If I choose to be that person or I figure out how to be that person, that's going to achieve those results, but it's not about the results. It's about who I'm being. And that mm-hmm. that's what changes everything. Exactly. It's changing who you're being, because when you change who you're being, 
you automatic automatically colors what you do. So if you tell yourself, I'm a person who's in great physical shape, but what does a person who's in great physical shape do? They go to the gym every day. <laughs> all right. They don't eat those two candy bars. All right. They don't sit on the couch and watch Netflix. They do drink water instead of a beer. So when you change who you're being, then the actions automatically follow as long as you buy into it. The thing is, you've had years of conditioning of being somebody else. That's why the mental cardio matters so much. You have to can you have to uncondition yourself from the nonsense and recondition yourself to the good stuff. That's where that's where things change. And this is why people do things like mindfulness practice and meditation and affirmations every single day. And I do these things every single day. Why? Because it conditions my mind for the type of person I need to be. So this is not me remembering. See, if you have to remember to do it, then it's not going to work. <laughs> it's not. Right? Your, yeah. your short term, your short, your long term memory is not that good. But when you condition yourself, your subconscious mind is what you need to get control of, which controls 85 percent of your thoughts. See, the things that anyone's listening to our conversation right now, your conscious mind is, is processing what we're saying. That's about 15 percent of your thinking. That's the surface. But the stuff that really controls your actions is not anything that you hear me or David say today is what's in your subconscious. That's the stuff that's been programmed in you. And the only way that changes is either by uh, emotional emotionalization or repetition. And you need a combination of both in order to change what's in the subconscious. That's what controls your actions. And one of the the techniques that you recommend in in cardio for the mind is something you call choose your signal. Yeah. Uh, a way of of that it's this is like a signal that it's time to give 100%. What is choosing your signal? What is that practice about? It's about connecting the, the physiology and your verbalizations with what's going on in your mind. It's basically anchoring those two things together. So you could think of something like, are, are you a basketball fan? Uh, from time to time. Uh, okay, not so, so much right now, but yeah. Okay. You know who LeBron James is? Absolutely. Who doesn't okay. know who LeBron James is? All right, good. So he's a good example. I, so won, my, I won my NCAA bracket last year. Does that count? Yes. That's okay. sports. Yeah. <laughs> so LeBron James before the games, I don't know if he does it anymore, but I know back in his early days before the games, he would go get the chalk and clap his hands and throw it up in the air. And all the fans would celebrate with him doing that. What was that? That was a signal uh, physiologically from for LeBron. I never heard him say this, but because he did it every game, it was a physiological signal to him from his mind to his body. Hey, it's game time. It's time for me to go out here and perform and be LeBron. Michael Jordan used to do the same thing. He didn't do it so theatrically, but he used to do the chalk before the games. And all athletes have different things. Are you familiar with Ray Lewis, the football player? He played for the oh, remember yeah. before the games, he would do that that wild dance he would do coming into the when he would get introduced. It, all athletes, many athletes have some type of ritual, some thing that they do before their performance. Tony Robbins is the guy he talks about before he goes on the stage and speaks. He has a like a trampoline. He jumps up and down a trampoline. He gets himself going and whatever it is that he needs to do to get himself in his into his zone for him to go out there and perform. All high performers have something that they do to trigger themselves. Some people, it's a more calmer, maybe it's just sitting down and just listening to some music. Maybe it's something that they say to themselves. Maybe it's going off on their own and not talking to anybody. Other people, they get all excited and hyped up, but there's something that is giving you the signal, the trigger. Hey, it's time for me to go into it. I don't know if you remember, I'll be dating myself with this one, but there used to be this um, this cartoon called a gym back in the day. G-E-M. Do you remember that? Oh, and yes. My girl, she was like a sister. Yeah, she was like one. a uh, she was like a rock star. A singer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And when it was time for her to perform, she would touch her earring and she would say Showtime Synergy. And she would turn into like the superstar singer. Mm -hmm. And then she would go out and perform and she would save the day and be the superhero. And then when she was done saving the day, she would touch her earring again. She would say shows over Synergy and she would turn back into a regular person. So it was like Clark Kent and Superman, but like the girl version. Most of you people don't even know what I'm talking about, but I, I think we can visualize it now. Yeah, but that's the you're giving yourself the signal that it's time to go. It's a physiological signal of yeah, and you're talking right. about the same thing. So when I, yeah, stage speaking, uh, when I'm going out to do a keynote or or workshop mm -hmm. or any of that kind of thing, yeah, I've got a I have a breathing and a there's a, a physical routine that I go through that gets me in that headspace and to do mm -hmm. my best. Yeah, exactly. I hear, I hear you. All right, so it's it's creating those kinds of things for those moments where we need to be at our hundred percent and uh, and helping our mind and body to go there. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So cardio for the mind. Let's, uh, we've got time for a couple more here. Let's, uh, uh, this principle is one that, that is so important. You wrote a whole nother book just about this, but the third day. So yeah. I love this, this concept. It's so true. Getting past the third day. 
Mm-hmm. What is the third day? Why do we need to get past it? And how do we get past it? Oh, well, the third day, again, as you said, the reason I wrote a whole book on this concept, because it's so important. The third day is subtitle of that book is a decision that separates the pros from the amateurs. So here's what it is. I'll paint a picture for everyone. And it's perfect, actually, because uh, when is this episode going to come out, David? Uh, late March, early April, I believe. Okay, so it's going to come out late March, early April. We're recording this in January, so we're about two and a half weeks into the year, right? So at the beginning of the year, anyone who goes to the gym regularly, you know what it's like in January. Right? Everybody's in the gym. Right? All these people you've never seen before is in the gym, are in the gym. Interesting thing, a lot of people don't notice that, you know, most gyms, the majority of their revenue comes from people who never actually come to the gym, but they pay for it. <laughs> but anyway, at the beginning of the year, everybody's in the gym because everyone's all excited. They're going to work out. They're going to do their thing, get in shape, new year, new me, uh, everything they say they're going to do. For about the first, let's say, two weeks, that's the first day. All right. We're still about in those. Let's say we're in that period right now. Then from about mid-January to about Valentine's Day, that's the second day, so to speak, where there's still some of the new people still coming in. But a bunch of new people have disappeared. You don't see them again. You won't see them again until next January. That's the second day. It's still relatively new. The situation still has that new car smell, but it's it's not as as fresh, as exciting as it was at the beginning. The third day, and again, these days don't have to be a, literally a day. It can be a month. It can be a week, any period. The third day is going to be from about now around spring break. That's about the time we get to about the third day. That's when... All the new people, you don't see them anymore. And the only people in the gym are the people who were there before, people who were there at Thanksgiving and Christmas. The third day is, and what this is, is the third day is any situation in life that you get to the point, you're going to get to a point, I don't care what it is, that the newness has worn off, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The newness of the situation, the novelty has is gone you realize that this thing that you signed up for, whether it's a business, it's a job, it's a relationship, it's uh, having a kid, it's anything. Writing a book. Yeah. Yes. Writing a book. You're going to realize, okay, this is not one big party. After all, there's some actual work that has to be done here. It's not all fun and games. And I've really got to buckle down and really have some some discipline and some mental toughness to get this done. And it's at that point, that's the inflection point. Because the third day is that moment. But what the third day really is about is a decision. What do you do in that moment? Because that moment is inevitable. That's going to happen to everybody. It's what do you do? Do you buckle down, grit your teeth and decide that you're going to keep showing up and doing the work? Or do you quit? Do you half-ass it? Do you kind of show up, but not really show up, kind of mailing in, as we say in sports? Which one do you do? And the decision that you make right there is what separates the professionals from the amateurs. Because every professional has times when they don't feel like doing the work. The question is not whether that's going to happen. The question is, do you do the work anyway or do you not? Yeah, it's when it's not if it's when and you know the from a leadership perspective the third day i mean that principle happens all the time so many people take management leadership roles mm-hmm. uh for the money for the prestige for the power whatever or or they really maybe they are really are committed to serving their people and and the cause and the mission and whatnot and it gets to be work the novelty wears mm-hmm. off the routine kicks in and now there's conflict and now there's the tough stuff and yeah. And what am I going to do then? Am I going to keep showing up? It doesn't mean you always show up and it doesn't hurt. Sometimes those right. workouts hurt. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely does hurt. And that's that's what makes you the pro is showing up and going back to the example. Look at somebody like LeBron James. This guy's been good for 20 years straight. You think they're nice? He doesn't feel like playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, there are times that he's been, you know, got his kids are getting on his nerves at home or he's arguing with his wife. Sure. I'm sure he has that because everybody has that, but you can't tell by watching him play. That's what makes you a pro. And there are there times, David, that you don't feel like recording. There are times. Yeah. That you it never wait. happens, Jerry. Never. <laughs> uh, okay. Yes. Books. Yes, it does. Right. So you written books. There are times you don't feel like sitting down and writing. There yeah. are times you don't feel like responding to emails. Um, maybe, maybe depending on how much you speak, there may be times you have to get on that stage. You don't really feel like being on that stage, mm. but you still show up and do your job. And the people who are consuming what you offer shouldn't be able to tell what days or what. They shouldn't be able to tell the difference between the day where you feel great and the day you feel terrible. It it should be exactly the same every single time. That's what makes somebody a professional because a professional is not about your potential. It's not about what you do at your peak. It's about what you do consistently. Because think about this as a consumer, none of us pays for randomness. We pay for what we know we're going to get. Think about when the Wi-Fi goes out of your house for 30 minutes, how angry you get. Why? Because you pay for it. You expect consistency. It's the same thing when it comes to 
people paying for your stuff. They expect consistency. So as long as you're consistent, people don't really care how you feel. As long as you deliver, they're happy because that's what they're paying for. They're not paying for your feelings. They're paying for your performance. And, and even the game a, we're in. And even apart from your your supervisor, your company, your business, whatever they're paying, there's also the what your team is needing and expecting and relying on you for and how you're showing up for them from a human-centered perspective. So moving right. past the third day, getting through the third day. All right, Trey, I got another question for you before we go. But first, I want to make sure, uh, where can we connect with you? Uh, I mean, you've got several different books. We've been talking about uh, work on your game today. Um, mm. But where can we connect? You've got a lot of different resources available for everybody here. Well, I'll give everybody a free copy of that book, Third Day. We were just talking about, here's the book right here. This is the hardcover version, but you can get the paperback version for free. You get the hardcover if you like. Just go to thirddaybook.com, spelled out, thirddaybook.com. The book's free, just cover the shipping. And this is a sales funnel. So on the next page, we'll offer you a bunch more books. Work on your game is one of them. So, But you can get this one for free. Just go to thirddaybook.com. Very good. All right, thirddaybook.com. That's where you're going. And Dre has a ton of social media channels, handles, all sorts of different resources. We will put all of those links in the show notes. Encourage you to check out his daily podcast, uh, Work on Your Game, and uh, uh, join the 5 million listeners listening to that. I think you get a taste of what you're in for there. All right, Dre, uh, when we have about five minutes left. So one of the, the elements that you talk about that I think could really serve many leaders listening to the show today is eliminating uh, that self-consciousness and performance anxiety. Yeah. and recommendations. How do we go about doing that? Because when I was, as I was reading through the book, I'm like, wow, that's one that's really going to be helpful. How do we do that? Mm-hmm. Eliminate self-consciousness and performance anxiety. And you even go so far as to say forever. Absolutely. So first let's get clear on what self-consciousness is. It's when you are being too conscious about yourself, therefore being selfish. And because you're not giving energy out, you're not getting any energy back. So, I mean, we just know how the universe works. What you put out is what you get back. So if you're being self-conscious, that means you are consciously focusing on you. So if you get on a stage and you're self-conscious, you're not giving any energy to your audience. Well, what are they going to give you back? Nothing. If you're a performer, let's say you're doing something like like you say your son is in performing arts or you're an athlete playing a sport and you're self-conscious thinking about what everybody else is thinking of you. That means you are over processing consciously in your mind what's going on instead of performing instinctively, which is what you uh, should have been trained to do. And the thing is, the conscious mind works very quickly, but the instincts are much faster. So when your conscious mind takes over something that should be instinctive, that's when you start messing up. It's like if you're on stage speaking, David, and you start consciously thinking about the words that you're saying, you you trip over your words. You're done. Why? Right. Because instinctively, you already know what you need to say. So athletes would often ask me, they would say, well, Dre, when I get in the game, what should I be thinking when the game starts? I say, you shouldn't be thinking at all. If you're thinking during the game, you are either unprepared or you haven't done the mental work. And that's part of preparation. You don't want to be thinking at all. I'm not thinking when I turn on a microphone. I'm not thinking when I get on the stage. When I was playing a sport, anytime I was thinking, I had a terrible game. Uh, I was already getting beat. So you want to get yourself in a position where you're not thinking at all. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier, chapter one, mental conditioning. You condition yourself to not be thinking when it's time to perform. But that all goes back to the discipline and the work that you do day in and day out so that when it's time to perform, you don't have to think about anything. And I think it was Tim Ferriss I give credit to for saying this, that when you get into pressure situations, you do not rise to the level of the occasion. You fall to the level of your training. You fall to the level of your preparation. So how have you prepared for the situation? And from a leadership perspective, obviously, we're not talking about you don't ever want to be thinking. It's that Mm -hmm. if if you're doing the preparation you're doing the work ahead of time so that when you're in that right. pressure situation, like you're talking about, um, and your team is, is, uh, you know, relying on you and there's a problem that needs to be solved and you're trying to figure out what to do with, you've already figured out your values. You've already done the work. You've already practiced the tough conversations or you're doing that work as you go so that you're able to survive, thrive, and, and make good choices in the moment. Right. And as a leader, let's say you're in a leader in a business organization, so you don't have to necessarily think instinctively all the time. You do get time to think about things, but it's as a leader, you're the person who's looking at the forest, not just the trees. So you're thinking ahead. You're seeing the challenges that may be coming on the horizon. You know more about the big picture of what's going on than everybody else does. So if and when something does come up, you have already thought about in your mind, all right, how could this possibly go? Where might this go wrong? Where are we going to run into some issues? What, am, what decisions am I going to have to make when something comes up? And these are things, this is part of your strategy because strategy is not just about 
all right, I'm going to go A, B, C, D. It's thinking about the branches in the plan. Or if this doesn't go the way it's supposed to, what are my options? What can I do here? What are some ways we can look at this? What are some different ways we can handle it? So it's thinking ahead of time about what's going to come or what might come before it comes so that you're ready before it happens. And again, professionals are prepared before the situation. They don't wait until the situation. And there's so many of those applications in leadership. So whether you're talking about strategy, like you just mentioned, or you're talking about a a difficult accountability performance conversation you got to have, or whether it's building a relationship with somebody who's, who's struggling, cultivating those skills. And that's why uh, people listen to the show, cultivate those skills and, and ingrain them so that they're there when we need them. That's right. All right. Jerry, it's been a pleasure. So many more things we could talk about. Uh, can I 60 seconds? How about one more? You got 60 seconds. Sure. All right. Let's oh. talk about selling yourself. Uh, Another principle, and I know you do, and the reason I know this is because (laughs) of the way that you pitched yourself for this show. Uh, Mm -hmm. Listeners, pull back the curtain. You run a a show like this. I'm sure this happens for Jerry's show with as successful as it is. Mm -hmm. I get tons of pitches, multiple pitches every day, right? Mm -hmm. The best pitch I have ever received was from the gentleman you're listening to right now. Uh, Dre is an expert. I would go so far as to say at representing himself, selling himself, but what is it when you're talking about selling yourself and putting yourself out there? Why? How? Man, it's a a great thing. And thank you for the compliment. Now my show happens to be a solo show. I don't have guests, but I still get those pitches from people, believe it or not. They don't care. They'll pitch it. Their PR people don't know what's going on. But anyway, uh, when it comes to selling yourself, I actually got that concept. I was working at, at the mall when I was 19 and the manager there, I'll be in the middle of the day working there. So there's no customers. We're just talking. And she told me she had all these jobs in retail. And as a teenager, you know, we would go to the mall and try to ask for applications and get jobs. So when she had all those jobs, I was impressed. How'd you get so many jobs? She said, well, I would go on an interview and I would sell myself. And she was the first person I ever heard say that phrase. I would sell myself. Mm-hmm. That there's a way to talk yourself up to make yourself look better than you not better than you are, but make yourself look great in the eyes of the beholder. And I always kept that in mind. So when I was trying to get on in basketball, I said, okay, there's a thousand players trying to get a job and there's about 50 jobs. How am I going to separate myself from them? I might be better than them. They might be better than me, but that's all very subjective. Let me sell. Let me figure out how can I sell myself? So I always had that mentality of selling myself in my head. So how do you sell yourself is first of all, you got to take stock of what it is that you can offer. And secondly, you got to know how to position. You got to talk about positioning yourself and talk yourself up in a way that people can understand why you are different, why you are valuable and why what you bring to the table is valuable to them. A challenge for a lot of people when it comes to selling is they talk about what it's in it for you, not what's in it for the person who you're actually trying to sell to. And that's a once you can kind of get over that hump, you can turn that over in your mind, you can become a great salesperson. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people, and that takes training. It takes conditioning. It takes some conscious thought. But once you get it to be unconscious, then it, you can become really good at it. But you have to kind of turn that over in your head. How can I talk about what I have to offer in such a way the person who I'm talking to knows why it matters to them? Because why it matters to you doesn't matter. All right, you're going to get what you're going to get anyway, as long as you get them to understand. You get them on board. You're going to get your stuff. You only have to talk about that. And these days, everybody knows, they know that when you reach out to them, you're looking for something for yourself, but they don't care as long as you're helping them. As Zig Ziglar said, you help other people get what they want, you get everything that you want. So that's the mindset of selling yourself is figuring out what does the other person want and how can I help them understand that I can help them get there. I remember George Clooney uh, interview, you know, he was an unsuccessful actor for a long time, going out on auditions all the time. And finally, one day he had a a mental shift where he realized, wait a minute, I'm the solution to a problem they have. Instead of like, okay, pick me, pick me, pick me. It was, hey, I am here as the solution for your problem. That's right. And he said, once I made that mental shift, I didn't get every role. I didn't get cast all the time, but way improved the energy I was showing up with, how I was doing. And that goes back to that eliminating self-consciousness you were talking about. If my energy is on me and how you perceive me. That's all self-focused. But if I'm here for you, totally different ballgame. Exactly. And that's exactly as you said. It's getting out of your own head, thinking about yourself and thinking about how can I best serve the person who I'm talking to? And when you focus on serving the other person, is everybody is tuned into what's in it for me, right? Everybody's favorite radio station. You focus on that, you will start getting much better responses from your audience, any audience. All right. We can't end on a better leadership note than serving other people. That's human-centered leadership at its core. Jerry, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I appreciate you being a guest on the show here today. 
Absolutely, David. I appreciate you sharing your platform and I hope your audience got some value from this. I'm sure they did. All right, listeners, you got plenty of different things to apply today. Uh, the one I'm thinking of right now is find that person and figure out how you can rebound for them uh, the, and, and borrow some minds in the process. Do that. Get out there. Be the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.